Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snacker Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Threepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void where prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Welcome to Royals Review Radio. I'm Max Reaper, editor of Royals Review, and uh, joining me as as used to be always, uh, Jeremy Greco. How are you doing? Uh, back in the co co-host seat. I, you know, it, it feels like uh, I never left. I love it. Um, I'm glad to be here. Yeah, it, it feels like nothing's changed because we also have Alex Duvall back on the program. Of course, we had to get him back on. Alex, how are you doing? Has has school already been canceled for Thursday yet? It has. We. Uh, like 30 minutes ago, so I was actually getting re- just finished eating dinner, getting ready to put the kid down. They called and said no more school, so I am um, I'm, I'm free for the next like 36 hours. And if they cancel school Friday, we got spring break next week, so I oh, might nice. I might be out for like 12 days here, which would be nice. Yeah. So for, for those of you who don't know, Alex is a teacher, and uh, I'm sure you you cherish those uh, snow days just as much as the students do. Um, so uh, and we're recording this on Wednesday when. Wednesday evening. There's not even a, a snowflake uh, out in the sky right now. It's kind of amazing. <laughs> we go ahead and cancel school, um, but you know it's supposed to snow overnight. I don't, I'm fine with it, um, but uh, uh, and I'm sure my kids are fine with it as well. But uh, uh, speaking of cancellations, uh, we are mm. going to talk a little about baseball and the labor deals, uh, and and things could be changing. I mean, by the time this podcast gets released, uh, uh, th- things uh, might have changed are- again, uh, but. Uh, Baseball did announce today that they're going to cancel a second week of games. They had already canceled the first week of games, although they came back and said, actually, we could you know, play some of those games if you agreed to our proposal today, which the players union did not. And so baseball went ahead and canceled a second week of games. Uh, Alex, it seems like they are tantalizingly close on a lot of issues, uh, things like the luxury tax, which had been a really big sticking point. Uh, I don't think there's agreement yet, but they're getting really close on the numbers. But it seems like the big sticking point now is uh, the international draft. The the, um, the owners owners would like to impose an international draft uh, in exchange for dropping the draft pick compensation for qualifying offers. Um, the players have kind of balked at that at this point. We'll talk a little bit about the international draft in just a minute. But what's kind of your sense on where these talks are at this point? Because it does seem like they're really close. Uh, we get a lot of tweets from from reporters about you know optimism and and you know things are moving in the right direction and yet we still don't have a deal here on March 9th with you know only a couple weeks to go before opening day. Uh, what's your sense on where uh, talks are and how optimistic are you that there will be a deal here pretty soon? I've been optimistic all off season and so I remain optimistic and at this point I feel kind of silly as optimistic as I am. <laughs> um, but I do I don't feel like they're going to cancel games into May. So I was dead wrong about them playing one sixty two. I think that is off the table. They might bring back one of these weeks of games, but I don't think there's a very wide path to them playing a full one sixty two. Although I do feel like it, we're getting closer and as far as the international draft goes, I think that's been a foregone conclusion for probably five, six years now. It's really just been a matter of when. And I think David Ortiz echoed some some sentiments about you know the the concern for um, bringing that in too quickly. And so I think the latest proposal was an international draft in 2024, which makes some sense because the guys who are 16 years old now who are going to be signing next off season will be aged out and the guys who are 14 years old now who shouldn't be signing shouldn't be committing just yet would be draft eligible then in theory uh for the next draft class so you would have time to kind of um 
you know, wean and, and, and get the guys who are going to be draft eligible through into that process and the guys who can sign international free agent deals into that process now. But I think the Braves, when, when the Braves shenanigans came out and like the Royals benefited from that, they signed Jeffrey Del Rosario and Juan Carlos Negret from that whole disaster. I think it was, it was inevitable because what you have is you have guys committing. It's almost like, like a college commitment in, in some capacity where they'll they'll you know we we know who's going to sign before it's ever legal to sign these contracts like it's just been a a cluster for a while now and you know i know the players like the international free agent process and i get it to to quite you know quite the extent i understand but at the same time the owners have not been playing by the rules and even the trainers and the players haven't been playing by the rules in in you know large part so um in order to keep things you know ethical and and we can talk about the draft being ethical as you know a whole, but in order to keep things ethical on on all fronts, I think a draft was inevitable. And I actually like it as a fan of a small market club. I also think the international signing bonus pools they've been having over the last few years have made this easier to segue into um, because it'll be like a draft. You'll get a draft pool similar to their international signing bonus pool that would be more like the June draft we see. So. I think it's been inevitable for a while now, and I think teams like the Royals will really benefit from, you know, having a shot at signing. You know, they they got Eric Pena, they got Suli Matias, but you know, having a shot at something like that every year instead of having to diversify their portfolio a little bit, um, you know. So I think there's some good things, and there's definitely some bad things from the players' perspective. Yeah, I did see. Uh... Uh, a tweet and I don't know we haven't seen really any details of the proposal but I did see a tweet that they would have they would want a hard slotting um, for the international draft so I don't know that you'd see like uh, a top a first round pick in the international draft get like big money while they skimp on the land rounds I don't know they you know they may change that if it ever does you know come to fruition um, but I think you raise a good point about how a couple years ago they did give these draft bonus pools so you know, I think the players would resist initially because, oh, well, the top international free agents aren't going to get the big money um, like they did back in the day. But as you as you point out, they, they really aren't getting that anyway because of these draft bonus uh, pools that prohibit teams from going over a certain amount anyway. And so, yeah, it does kind of make sense to um, to to kind of bring a draft into a draft and make it so that. These these players are assigned by based on you know what team finished poorly like the like the amateur draft for North American players, um, but but Jeremy we've seen a little bit of pushback from the players union I think David Ortiz um, was very outspoken about it. he said and a lot of the Latin American players have pushed back on this um, and Ortiz was saying you know, the, you know they're not quite ready yet for this kind of system which I get and I think a delayed implementation does make a lot of sense but what what's kind of the players angle here. Um, you know, as Alex mentioned, you know, it's, it's not necessarily like they're going to get a lot less money out of it. Um, so it's kind of it's kind of, I think, a little frustrating that, um, you know, we've kind of gotten this gotten this close only to see it almost, you know, if it does get derailed, you know, derailed by this uh, international draft proposal. So I don't know. Do you have an idea of why the players are kind of against this so much or, or what's kind of your thoughts on the whole proposal? So based on what I've been reading and seeing, the biggest thing um, is that it was kind of sprung on them late. Um, and and they were kind of told, you got to agree to this now or, uh, you know, no deal. We're canceling another week of games, which is, again, a whole other ball of wax because I'm not actually convinced MOB can cancel games unilaterally. My understanding is that the that, that's part of the CBA negotiations is is because that's the whole thing from 2020. Um, but uh, to get off that rabbit trail, uh, I think that was a big part of it is that the they kind of feel like they're they're kind of being yanked around by the owners. Um, I know they also complained the last time there was a deadline and they were up very late. The owners kept trying to slip in some clauses and they thought, uh, oh, it's late at night and the players won't read this all and they'll just agree to it. And the players kind of feel like the owners are kind of treating them like they're dummies and uh, they don't really appreciate it. And I, I can't say I blame them. I wouldn't appreciate it either. Um, and so I think that's a big part of it. I think another part of it is I do think that there you know there is some concern about the compensation that they'll receive 
um, because once you institute a draft, you know, you have the, you talked about, they have the, the pool now, but the, the, the pool allows for, uh, you know, bidding competitions to occur. And if you have a draft that doesn't occur as much, um, and especially, I, I also, uh, don't necessarily think that a draft will, uh, necessarily, I say that word a lot, um, but I don't think it will necessarily make things more ethical, uh, as you said, Alex, in that I believe teams could still be picking guys up at 12 and being like, and, and getting these verbal agreements that they have, like they're doing now, and saying, you know, we're going to draft you because uh, we've spent all this time and effort. So just make sure you tell everyone else that you're not going to sign with them if they draft you. Um, so I could see that kind of scenario playing out um, so that it just wouldn't necessarily be any better for the players, but could be potentially be worse by removing that uh, that bidding war uh, potentiality. Yeah, and I did see one one point made about, you know, these kids are signing at age 16, and when you take the time that they are, uh, you know, they're going to take a while to get to the majors, and then they've got six years after that to uh, before they reach free agency. So that's a, that's a decade more or more that they're going to have to spend with one organization that they didn't pick. Um, so at least, like, like, right now they have some agency in picking where they go, whereas if they have a draft, it's like, well, you're going to Cincinnati, and I don't care if you don't like it or not, that's the team that picked you, and maybe that's not a good situation for them, but they can't really do anything about it. Now, I don't know how much agency a 15-year-old kid has now. Like, you know, these are really younger than that, because like you say, a lot of these kids get kind of signed uh, unofficially with these teams uh, at a much younger age. So um, I don't know you know, if that's much of a difference from what we have now. But I think I tend to agree with Alex that I think reforming the system and having a draft makes some sense. Um, now, you know, I say, like, it's frustrating the players are, are, are not entertaining this thought. Max Scherzer now is tweeting that they were not never offered an interna- international draft, uh, which disputes a lot of the reporting. So it's really hard to say what's what's really going on in the, in the negotiating stage. It's point, you know, it's really clear that uh, the owners, at least, are kind of negotiating through the press and it was interesting today. Uh, we are we are a couple steps remo- removed from um, uh, one of our colleagues who kind of made national a little bit of national news today when David Lesky had a tweet about. Um, well, I can read the tweet on on, on, my, on here, but uh, David Lesky tweeted something to the effect that um, the owners would never accept a proposal from the MLP MLBPA, uh, so he didn't expect uh, anything to happen. And guess who that was liked by? That was liked by none other than Mets owner Steve Cohen, suggesting that oh. he agrees with that notion. So, uh, and then they, the, the, the uh, Cohen actually had to walk that back and said, "Well, actually, I, I didn't mean to like that. That was an accident." Well, <laughs> I, it seemed to kind of tip their hand a little bit, but uh, and there's I, been you know a little bit of dissent from the owners because we found out which owners voted against the the uh, increase to the CBA. And the only way we could find that out is if some somebody in that camp leaked it because uh, nobody else has access to that information. Yeah, and, and there were four hardliners too. They 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 didn't like the deal because they didn't feel it was strong enough. And it was the uh, the owners of the Reds, Angels, Tigers, and uh, Diamondbacks. Interestingly enough, you know, Alex, I do wonder like how much dissension, you know, how solidified are the owners at this point? Because you know, think about it, Rob Manfred has to deal with thirty. Uh, not only 30 personalities, but 30 rich guys who probably haven't been told no too much in their life and haven't had to form a consensus too much. Um, you know, that's a lot of personalities. And we have teams with very different interests. You know, the, what's good for the Yankees, what's good for the Mets, and Steve Cohen, who just bought his team and wants to make a splash, is going to be very different from what's good for the Royals and their ownership group, which just bought the team. Um, you know, do you see a scenario where there's maybe some cracks in the in the facade for the owners, or or are they pretty? Uh, they, are they going to be pretty intent on breaking the union and getting what they want? Oh no, I think there's a way better chance that we see cracks in the owners than we do in the players' union. The players got royally uh, screwed over in the last CBA negotiations, and part of that was their own fault. Um, but they got royally screwed over. And the owners, if you think about it, like you said, with Steve Cohen and, and John Sherman, just bought the team. John Sherman owns, a, owns a, the smallest market team in the league. He needs games to be played. Every time the Royals don't play a game, John Sherman loses a larger percent of his money than, say, the owner of the Yankees, the Red Sox, the Cubs, right? Because the, the 
teams in the smaller markets, every dollar means more than the bigger market teams who sell more merchandise, have a bigger international following. Um, so I, I definitely think it's possible that the owners would start to eat at each other more so than the players would. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me. I think also the issue is, what is it you you need 22 or 24 owners to agree to a CBA? I think it's 23, yeah. 23? Mm-hmm. So you're telling I mean, that you could get eight big market owners to say we're not agreeing to something until we all like it, and then the other 22 could be disagreeing with them? Um, you know, this is something I think is absolutely possible. Now, what is it happening? I don't know. But I certainly think it's possible – um, and I think it's actually likely that even if all the owners are, have agreed to, to band together and just wait this thing out, that guys like John Sherman and maybe even Steve Cohen um, are definitely feeling the negative effects of it. I, I was listening to the One Royal Way podcast earlier today um, that Joel Penfield's running over on um, KCSN, and Alec Lewis was on there from The Athletic talking about how Dayton Moore is the only executive to come out and speak really since the lockout began. And Dayton Moore was apologizing to fans. And I think there's, you know, some implied sentiments there where if Dayton Moore is coming out to apologize to fans, like, is it a PR move? Maybe, but knowing Dayton Moore, knowing the Royals front office, like I I would believe that the Royals are very much irritated by the lockout, very much irritated by the treatment of the players. And I would buy that the Royals, like, is it possible John Sherman's going to these owners' meetings telling the rest of the owners to shut up and let's play? I think it's definitely possible. Yeah, it was it was very telling that Whit Merrifield, who's the Royals player rep, uh, in an interview kind of like was pretty clear, like I don't he's like yeah, I don't think John Sherman is like the ringleader here. I you know, I, you know, and not that he has like personal knowledge of what's going on in those me- owners' meetings. And look, John Sherman ultimately um, you know, it was supposedly a unanimous vote to cancel games before. Um, supposedly, you know, so you would think that John Sherman was part of that. Um, but Whit Merrifield did kind of kind of go out of his way to say, you know, I don't think that John Sherman is, is necessarily the problem here. So I agree. I think the Royals definitely want to play, and they, they've kind of had to be along for the ride. Um, and, and they want to get back to playing ball, and just like the players want to get back to playing ball. Uh, but, but um, you know, ultimately John Sherman's one of the ownership group, and he's, he's part of the owners, and um, he's going to have to go along with what, they're, what they want. Um, Jeremy, you know, you – we're going to see, you know, most likely it seems like we're going to see, I think, I agree with Alex, at least one week of games canceled. Um, we'll see if the second week of games gets canceled because, uh, you know, the, the league did suggest they could make up some of these games with double headers. But you wrote last weekend that, um, you know, canceling games could actually be kind of a good thing. Uh, what did you mean by that? Because that was kind of a provocative title that I think probably w- warranted some explanation. So could g- give us a kind of idea of what you're thinking with your article. So, uh I, as as I've grown older, have kind of looked at baseball not just as a sport uh, that entertains me, and I don't just look at the statistics. I also look at the, um, I also at least try to see kind of the the social repercussions. Um, you know, understand that these players, these owners, they all live in the same world that we do. Um, they all interact with the same world that we do. And and kind of see, you know, how those things, how they do things differently, how they do things the same. And so what I meant when I wrote that was that the reason games are being canceled, if indeed they are ultimately canceled, um, is because the players are not rolling over and giving in to uh, the owner's demands. And I am a firm believer that... Uh, that that when uh, when one labor union or, or even labor that's not unionized when they make a stand against uh, ownership or employers that uh, it it helps all uh, employees and laborers everywhere uh, as they also seek to to you know be compensated fairly for their jobs. Um, I know there's a lot of of disdain among people because play, baseball players are paid quite a bit of money to do their job. Um, but the fact of the matter is they bring in a lot of money. They are extremely profitable uh, for the for the people who employ them. 
Um, and so it only makes sense that they earn a fair percentage of the work that they're doing. And I think that applies to all of us. Uh, so I just was writing that, uh, you know, I believe that we all deserve to be paid uh, fairly and that it doesn't make sense for owners or CEOs or presidents or whoever to just keep pocketing uh, millions and billions of dollars uh, for the labor that, that we or the players produce. And that if the players are willing to take a stand against the owners, that uh, it, it shows a willingness just in general for labor to take a stronger stand and get laborers a bigger piece of the pie. And, and I appreciate that because I certainly would like a bigger piece of the pie at my job. Uh, I don't know about you guys, uh, but uh, that's, that's basically all I was saying is that, uh, yeah, I, I, you know, I don't want to, to lose baseball games any more than anybody else. I'd much rather be watching baseball than not watching baseball, uh, as the case may be. But if I, if I have a choice between watching baseball where the, the players just got completely destroyed, their union is broken and the owners just get to do whatever they want and take all the money that they want and the players don't get anything or, you know, we have to lose some games so that the players can get uh, a fairer deal, uh, then I will definitely take the latter. And, and I hope everyone else will too, because whatever if the players can't beat the owners, if the rich guys, in this case, who have more power than we do in our jobs, certainly, can't, can't beat their employers, then what hope do we have? And so that's kind of what I look at it as. You know, it is interesting how much uh, kind of public sentiment has shifted, I think. Uh, I was writing about some of the um, other work stoppages in baseball, and in 1972 was the first time baseball players ever went on strike. And it was over kind of something kind of small. You know, it seems kind of small now. It was, it was over uh, pension uh, benefits, um, and they wanted more pension benefits for their older players that had, reti- had retired. And they ended up going on strike for the first week of the season. Uh, there was a sporting news poll at the time that showed 90% of the fans were against the players. Uh, overwhelmingly <laughs> unpopular. They did. They hated losing those eight games. Uh, and, you know, the players went back to, they, they ended up winning that battle and went back to work after losing eight games. Uh, there was a morning consult poll, uh, and they do really good polling in political and politics uh, this week that showed that uh, people blame the owners. 45% of the fans blame the owners compared to like, I think it was 28% blame the, the players. So, Definitely things have changed. I th- I've definitely noticed a, ten- a different tenor with uh, national writers, uh, whereas in 94, I think there was much more blame on the players this time around. Um, I think there's been much more blame on the owners. Now, the more we see games lost, though, I do wonder if that does begin to shift because right now the fans aren't necessarily feeling any pain because we're losing some spring training games. We might lose the first week of the season. But if this does stretch into late April and, and we're not seeing games until May or June, then I wonder if that's that is going to start shifting to the players. Maybe it's worth it to lose the PR battle in order to kind of get some of the things you're talking about. But um, but as for right now, it seems like they do have the fans on their side. Um, you know, I did want to talk a little bit about uh, development earlier this week where the the players did agree to what the owners have been asking for a while, and that is um, changing the rules. Um, and we've got a report is that they've agreed to these changes in the rules, which isn't quite the, 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 the isn't quite the uh, what happened yet. Um, so the the owners really or the players just agreed that instead of waiting a year to implement rules, um, it would only take 45 days to uh, for the owners to implement new rules. Um, and what we did get a, a, some revelation on what the owners want to change. And that is a pitch clock, a 14-second pitch clock, uh, larger bases that would expand the base size from 15 inches to 80, 18 inches, and then um, a ban on defensive shifts. And some of those details haven't been uh, fully uh, revealed in the press yet. But Alex, what's kind of your reaction to the, some of these proposals? I know baseball has been kind of experimenting with some of these rules in the minor leagues with different results. Um, what's kind of your initial reaction to seeing these rule changes? I want to talk about banning the shift first because this is something I'm semi-passionate about. I don't I don't really know why, but I'm I'm fired up about it already. Let me ask you this: In the National Football League, can the offensive team send as many players as they want downfield on any given play? No, I believe it's what just uh, the receivers. The the, the the receivers can right. Mm-hmm. Well, what if I want to send my right tackle out for a pass? Just defend it, right? Just just put a, just put somebody on him who can defend him. 
Yeah. What, but, what's, what's the what's the problem? Just defend him. Yeah. I yeah, I don't know. <laughs> in the NBA, we can't in college basketball as well. You can't have an offensive player in the paint for three seconds. Why not? Just defend him. Just do it better. Just be better. Just right. defend him better. I hate these sentiments from fans who don't want to ban the shift. Every single sport on earth has rules about where you can stand, where you cannot stand, where you can hit the ball, where you cannot hit the ball. Tennis, you can't just serve it willy-nilly all over the field. It has to go into one half, not even a half, it's a little bit smaller than half, of the court. You have to serve it from right to left or left to right. Basketball, you cannot play zone defense in the paint. You cannot play offense in the paint. In football, you cannot line up in certain positions. You must line up in certain positions. You can't go downfield. You must be downfield. Hockey and soccer have icing and offsides. Every single sport has rules except for baseball. I don't understand why a shift would be such a bad thing. If it opens up offense, if it makes the game more fun to watch, what are we talking about? I remember my dad talking about when they when they put in a three-point line and people were fired up in basketball. Oh, my gosh, this is a circus shot. This is a clown show. What are we making three-pointers for? Just be better. Just make your layups. Be better on offense. Just no, it makes the game more enjoyable. It makes the game more aesthetically pleasing. What would be more fun? Watching Ryan O'Hearn hit a line drive into right center field that's caught by the second baseman or watching that ball split the gap and seeing if he can turn it into a double. Knew it there was going to be nothing, O'Hearn. There is no, well, he's the one. He made a good point about that on Twitter, and I, and, and I don't actually disagree with him. Like, If you want to put all four infielders on one side of the infield, maybe – but their feet have to be in the dirt. I'm tired of watching slow-pitch softball rovers out in right center field, left center field. Like Again, like it's slow-pitch softball. The, like the, the idea that in baseball we can't have defined positions like every other sport on earth is just ludicrous to me. And I get like the purest idea of, hey, just hit the ball the other way. Like I dare you to set a machine where you know the ball is going to be Set up, set up a machine throwing 90 miles an hour on the inside corner. I dare you to hit it the other way. You cannot do it. And the people who are like, well, just bunt. That's not fun. Like, it's fun every once in a while. But if every left-handed hitter went up there and bunted in every at-bat, it wouldn't be as fun. It's not as fun as home runs. So I don't understand all these people complaining about a rule that would objectively make the game more aesthetically pleasing for everybody. Um, so, so the banning of the shift, I am all in on. I am in favor. I will vote. I will fight. I will petition, picket, protest, march. What do you need me to do? I will do it. I will be the face of banning the shift. <laughs> yeah, that's actually a very – that's probably the best defense of banning the shift I've ever read or I've ever heard. Uh, and I say that as someone that is on the completely opposite end of the, the spectrum as far as uh, belief. But that, 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 I think you make a lot of good points. I mean, yeah, you're right. It's not, It would not be – um, it's not uh, uncommon to have those kind of rules in the game to, like you say, for basketball, that's to make sure we don't clog the lane and, and, and that helps the off help, helps facilitate the offense and same with the football. So yeah, it does make some sense in that respect. Uh, Jeremy, what do you, what, where do you land on the, the pro shift ban the shift argument? I, I am very pro ban. I'm actually surprised that I actually get to agree with Alex for once. <laughs> um, for a, a lot of the reasons he said, um, you know, though he said them very well, uh, I, I kind of had the argument that I would make where I said, um, where I would say, you know, in general, I think people are just opposed to rule changes because they don't want rule changes. People just don't like change. And I look at football um, and, and, pointing out the NBA rule changes was very smart. Um, I was going to say the same thing about football. You know, football changes rules all the time. And, and and you know, maybe it's they play the sport very differently now than they did 50 years ago, and maybe it's not as pure. But you know what it is? A heck of a lot of fun. And uh, they make all that money. And it's a very popular sport. And they, you know, so I think that, I think that it's very smart for MLB to want to change the rules to make the game more fun to watch. Um, I, I, you know, the shift is very smart. It makes a lot of sense. 
Um, but I feel like it went against the spirit of the, the game. It didn't go against the rules, but it went against the spirit, which was, you know, the first baseman and the second baseman over here, the third baseman and the shortstop are over here. And, and you know, the rules didn't say you couldn't shift the shortstop into shallow right field, but no one really expected that you would do that. So they just didn't think to make a rule for that. And so I think it makes a lot of sense to say, you know what, this was the spirit, even if it wasn't the the law. So let's let's make that shift and let's make it the actual law, uh, because then, you know, the game is, is more fun. And we can go back to left handers hitting singles every once in a while. That's one thing, too. I think that, you know, like as a baseball fan, I want to see more action and like every other sport, the baseball is unique because every other sport that I can think of off the top of my head, the offense controls the ball, right? D- baseball is like the one sport where the defense controls the ball. And so baseball is an inherent advantage because every other sport that we know of is actively trying to promote offense because offense is fun to watch. And in baseball, it is rigged in favor of the pitcher. That's why Trevor Bauer complaining, like, well, why don't we just ban curveballs? He's like, dude, every rule in the game like even the balls and the strikes three strikes you're out but it takes four to walk every rule in the game is designed to benefit the pitchers that's why pitchers have to succeed like eight or nine times out of ten and hall of fame hitters succeed three or four times out of ten like they're like every rule is designed to benefit. and i i pitched in college I, i was a pitcher that is what i did and i am all for the advancing of a more modern baseball that is promote promoting offense and and trying to find ways to create like active styles of baseball because I hate the way that baseball has become home run and the three true outcome oriented and and that that's a whole other thing but the more action the more that baseball teams can be like the 2015 Royals the better and the less shifting I think gives you the better opportunity to have more teams like the 2015 Kansas City Royals. All all three of these rule changes are oriented towards more action. The yes. pitch clock is stop holding on to the ball, throw the dang pitch. And then Well, and I think they- there's I think there's ways that can promote offense too because mm-hmm. as a pitcher, if you give me 30 seconds between pitches, I can really reload, get my bearings, get mm-hmm. my energy back mm-hmm. and then throw the ball with every bit of gas I have left. Yep. If you're making a pitcher consistently throw every 14 seconds, the likelihood of him wearing down and the stuff not being there as sharp later on in the game is 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 greater. And so I think that implementing a pitch clock, and I, I think 14 seconds is that might right be a on the short. cusp of being a little too quick, but somewhere between 14 and 17 seconds, you put the pitch clock in there, make them come set, make them get the ball, make them throw the pitch, um, and you can actually have really, really effective – offensive promotional effects in that regard as well. And the the large bases actually make me really excited as a Royals fan because the Royals for so long have advocated for uh, athleticism and speed and the larger bases, it doesn't, I don't know the exact percentage, but it absolutely makes a stolen base more likely. 100% makes a stolen base more likely because there's less distance between the two bases now. And, um, you know, it also makes the game safer, which I am always for, because they're less likely to trip over each other trying to get on the bases. It, it's also so, supposed to, think, there's also supposed to be a ramp up, like the, the bases will be a little bit different. So you, they, they, what they're trying to do is cut down on the play where the, the runner is safe, but he's, he's going so hard, he slides over the base, and for a millisecond he comes off the base, which is the most annoying play in baseball. That, yeah, that's, and so they're going to get rid of that a little bit, hopefully. replay challenge, and, and removing that replay challenge and making more successful stolen bases absolutely makes the game more fun. Um, stolen bases are fun. Because it, it gives you, even if the batter doesn't make contact with the ball, it gives an opportunity for something to happen on the play. So having more stolen base opportunities around the league is only going to make the game more exciting. I did want to go back to the, to the shift as, as the resident uh, pro shift guy to make the argument for why they should not ban the shift. So I hear you, Alex, and I, I agree. I, what I, I think the ultimate goal is to is to create more uh, act, action on the field. You want more balls in play. You want less three true outcomes, or at least some sort of balance where um, you know we don't have as many walks, hits, and walks, strikeouts, and, and home runs as we're getting right now. But my my issue is that I feel like banning the shift incentivizes more 
big power hitters who pull the ball and guys like Ryan O'Hearn who um, are still, if you ban the shift, they have no reason to adjust their swing. We have, or we have no reason to say, okay, a guy like Ryan O'Hearn is not valuable. Let's go to a guy like Nicky Lopez who does spray the ball around the field. He's going to be more valuable. So I'm worried about the unintended consequences where we're, we're really keep, we're going to keep going down that path of having three true outcome players. And in my opinion, the only way to really reduce that is to deaden the ball somehow and make home runs less attractive, make it so that they're harder to get, make it so that um, it's, it's, it, it's more important to get on base and spray the ball around the field. And I agree with Jeremy, get more stolen bases into the game, make that uh, a more attractive way to get uh, runs and, and, and less of a, a penalty uh, in that in, in, in getting out uh, if you're caught stealing. So, uh, you know, I'm all for, I think the heart's in the right place. I think, I, I agree, it's really frustrating when you see a guy smash a ball off the middle and, uh-oh, the shortstop's right there, he was standing right there. But on the other hand, and I agree with you, it, 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 to say, okay, just flip, you know, flick the ball to the left side of the left side of the infield. It's much easier said than done. I mean, just because you could do it in sixth grade, bro, doesn't mean you can do it against guys throwing ninety six <laughs> with cheese in the major league level. So I agree with you. That's not as easy as. But there are players that do have that ability, and I would like to see those players. I think valued more in baseball, and I'd like to see this kind of play out a little more. I mean, you know, baseball has always been a game of adjustments, and you know, the the, the shift's been around for a while, but it's really the last four or five years we've really seen major usage of it. And we haven't given hitters a chance to adjust and, and a chance to become hitters who can spray the ball over the field. I mean, Joey Gallo can't suddenly change his swing to be a guy that hits the ball to left field. But maybe a kid in high school or a kid in college right now that's developing his hitting development, maybe that kid can. Um, so I'd like to kind of see things play out a little bit before I uh, jump on the band, the shift bandwagon. Um, and the other thing is the shift gets overrated a little bit, frankly. Um, I think uh, Bill James said something like, you know, out of 20, you know, for every 21 shifts, you know, 20, will, uh, you know, it takes 21 shifts, but you're going to lose 20, uh, you know, hits to the shift because uh, a guy is not where the shortstop would be necessarily. So um, I, I think the, the batting average in balls, you know, the batting average has plummeted the last couple of years, but batting average in balls in play has gone down, what, 5, 8%, I think maybe, or 5 uh, to 8 uh, percentage points, which is not insignificant, but is also not kind of the, it's not really the, the, the cause of the problems right now. The problem is, too many guys are striking out. So that's my defense of the shift. Uh, that being said, I've kind of come to around to the point where if they did ban it, I think I'd probably be okay with it because that's the game I grew up with. You know, a second baseman on the right side, a shortstop on the left side. It would be, you know, pretty much be like baseball was and was for 100 years. Um, it, it just seems a little silly to me to say, we all know the guy is going to hit it over here. And, you know, there's an article – the, they they talked to uh, the Northwest Arkansas Naturals broadcaster about how banning the shift worked in Double A, and he's like, yeah, guys still kind of cheat a little bit. You know, they you know they they kind of get moving a little bit. You know, because you're not supposed to move until the pitch is delivered, and then once the pitch is delivered, they kind of run where they think the guy is going to hit the ball. So there's there's going to be some of that, but um, yeah, I know I I'd still kind of like to see how things play out first before we ban the shift, but yeah, we'll see. One of my favorite things, and, and one thing you just said reminded me of this, and I was given um, a buddy of mine crap about this earlier today. Um, he, he said, like, the exact same thing you did. He's like, it's, it's I think, what do you say? He's like, it's silly to say, we know the guy's going to hit it over there, but we can't go over there. And so he was, you know, he's old school, kind of like you are, and he was saying, you know, you know, why don't the hitters just hit the ball the other way? It's like, well, why don't pitchers just not let them pull the ball? It's like just just throw it somewhere else. Don't let him pull it. It's just, I, like I think there's, I think there's a lot of defenses, and 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 I d- actually agree with you that I think hitters, at the lower levels, are kind of acknowledging this and learning to to handle it a little better. Um, you know, I just think the the promotion of offense is paramount in Major League Baseball right now. And if, you know, Ryan O'Hearn and Joey Gallo and these big lefties who who end up rolling over on a lot of ground balls are you know, trying to hit home runs and then they fail, but by failing, they roll over a ball to, to the right side of the infield. You know, singles are cool too. Like having guys on base is cool. And so I, I am for the promotion of offense, but I agree that, you know, in some ways the shift has made younger hitters adjust because they, they know they can't just keep beating it and, and into the one side of the field. And so they're, they're learning it uh, in some capacity, but, um, you know that that is a good point. I don't know how well it would translate because I think, kind of like in the NBA, height is always going to be paramount in some capacity. Like 
in some ways, being able to hit the ball over the fence is always going to have its obvious advantages over a guy like Nicky Lopez. So I think there are, you know, like the NBA having a rim at 10 feet, like sets some clear advantages for being taller. Like Major League Baseball won't ever have that per se, but I do think there will just be an inherent advantages that the game would be better off leaning into versus trying really hard to stay away from. And, and Jeremy brought up the, the the point about the NFL and leaning into the passing game. Like I was watching, it was clips of like Priest Holmes era Chiefs football where they'd toss the ball out and the offensive line is just crushing people downhill. Um, like the, the game, it was, it was so different on both sides of the ball than it is today. And the NFL just leaned into it. They said, who are our superstars, the quarterbacks? Deal. We will make them the biggest, brightest superstars in the world. And I think Major League Baseball would be good to go back to the Sosa and McGuire days of we're going to ban the shift and we're going to lean into these big guys who hit big home runs and make the game as easy for them as possible, just like the NFL has made the game easy for quarterbacks by you can't touch them, you can't touch their face, you can't touch their neck, you can't touch their knees, you can't touch their feet. Like, here's your little target zone. If you want to get one of these big hitters out, you better strike them out because we want to make the game as easy as possible for them because they are our superstars. Let's, uh, let's take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some under-the-radar prospects with Alex. Most of the time, we talk about tech in terms of a handful of gigantic companies like Google, Meta, and Apple. But some of the most interesting stuff we find online is the product of a single person. When you're working on your own, I think there's this beauty of being able to come up with an idea and then implement it then in that moment. You don't have to have permission from someone else. There's no red tape. In the Vergecast series, Solo Acts, we'll get to know these people, the tech they use to get stuff done and the obstacles they face trying to compete with the giants. Some people that I talk to and my friends are like, you know, your competitors are Zuckerberg and Musk. Like, aren't you kind of like afraid of that? Every Monday, our friend Ashley Escada will be curating and hosting these interviews and sharing with us what she's learned. I can't believe the McRib locator was originally a tornado locator. Right. <laughs> Pretty wild. Listen to our Solo Acts miniseries now in the Vergecast feed, anywhere you find podcasts. We're back, and uh, Alex, uh, you know, we, since there are no major leaguers in camp this year, we've really got a lot of focus on the minor leagues, which is actually really good because... You know, the Royals are going to be relying a lot on their minor leagues this year. And, and you know, Alec Lewis at the Athletics has done a lot of really good pieces. Annie Rogers at, at MLB.com is, you know, that's all she could write about is minor leaguers right now. Lynn Worthy has written uh, some good pieces. And I think you you at Royals Farm, Farm Report obviously have done a lot of really good work about uh, some of the minor leaguers that we should be keeping an eye on. Um, you know, I, we're all really familiar with the Bobby Witt Juniors of the world. Even MJ Melendez and Nick Prada, who were, were kind of under the radar a year ago, I think people are pretty familiar with what they've done and are pretty uh, excited about what they can do at the big league level. But who are some of the other guys that maybe haven't gotten as much publicity that you think we need to kind of keep our eye on this summer? Because we're going to have a minor league season regardless of what happens with this lockout. You know, one guy who I tweeted about, earlier this offseason, but then um, Jared Perkins wrote a story for us over at Royals Farm Report about Brewer Hicklin today. It was A, it was a wonderful piece, and I didn't write it, so I'm, I'm self-promoting my website, but I, I didn't write it. Jared did a wonderful job capturing Brewer Hicklin's story and the struggles he went through last year. Brewer Hicklin was drafted in 2017. He has won a championship at every level of the minors. In 2018, he won a championship at Lexington. 2019, they won it at Wilmington. 2021, they won it at Northwest Arkansas. 2022, I'm assuming he'll be in Omaha. And he struggled pretty pretty good early on in 2021. I forgot how dominant he was to close out the season. He lit AA on fire for half of the season, the back half of the season, really once um, Vinny Pasquantino was called up and Bobby Witt Jr. and Nick Prada were moved to AAA Omaha. He's a guy, just because the Royals are so short in the outfield right now, I think Brewer Hicklin, I didn't. I, I wrote an organizational depth piece about left field, right field. I don't even think I included him on it. I, I overlooked him until today. I was reading Jared's, I was rereading Jared's story. I'm like, man, I totally forgot about Brewer Hicklin myself. So Brewer Hicklin, I really think, has a chance to help the Royals in the outfield this summer if, if things don't fall right for, for Kyle Isbell for Michael A. Taylor, for Andrew Benintendi, if they move one of those guys. I think there's an avenue for Brewer Hicklin this year. Um, you know, Michael Massey has gotten some publicity. He's He might be the second baseman of the future. I knew he was good defensively at second base. But every now and then you, you know, you keep reading 
a narrative over and over and over again. And his defense at second base, there's a reason he won the Rawlings Gold Glove Award for the entire minor league system or all minor league players last year at second base is he can really pick it. And then his bat speaks for itself. 21 home runs last year in high A. Um, but even if you move down a little bit, Kale Emshoff is a catcher who struggled in some ways between low A and high A last year, struck out a lot, um, also hit for quite a bit of power. We had him on the podcast over at Royals Farm Report. He talked about some adjustments he made, some things he was doing wrong. And then I was, um, I think it was Annie who tweeted out that it was going to be Team Emshoff and Massey versus Pasquantino and Lofton. And to hear his name thrown in with like three of the other biggest prospects that are down there as one of the team captains, I think speaks to what Kale told us is that he feels a lot better. He's hitting more like himself. You know, strikeouts for him were never that big of an issue in college. And all of a sudden he gets to low A and they were they were really, really high, like Suli Matias levels of strikeouts. Um, but I think if he, you know, sticks behind the plate and hits for this much power, he's a guy that is going to probably force the Royals to look at trading him because, excuse me, they've already got catchers, obviously. And he could bring back a haul if he catches and, and hits like I think he's capable. Um one last guy I'll, I'll throw in here is a guy that is just a personal favorite of mine. Um, you know, there's, there's, he was at low A for a little bit last year is Peyton Wilson, and he absolutely clobbers baseballs for a little guy, right? I mean, he's like 5'8", five, 5'9", five, absolutely can fly on the bases. But So we talk about hit tool sometimes, like Nicky Lopez, the ability to put the bat on the baseball, but – you know, Patrick Brennan wrote and shared an article about how we might be able to reevaluate hit tool in order to like how often do they hit meaningful line drives that can go for base hits. Like if you're Nick Madrigal and you're just hitting eighty mile an hour line drives all over the place, like they're gonna get they're gonna be outs more often than not. You might make a lot of contact, but if you're not making meaningful contact, then then who cares, right? There's a happy median. So Peyton Wilson's hit tool in that regard is he smashes line drives. He'll never be a 15, 20 home run guy, but I think he could hit eight to 10 home runs in the big leagues one day, hit 300 and play a really good defense, you know, maybe even in center field, I think is possible for him. So I imagine Peyton Wilson, who was drafted in the second round last year, will be back in low A to start the year, but I wouldn't be surprised if he was in high A pretty quick. Similarly to how they promoted Tucker Bradley uh, last offseason, another guy I've got my eye on. So uh, Peyton Wilson, KLM Schaff, Michael Massey, there's some there's some guys to keep your eye on because the the system is stacked and up and down and like I was talking uh, recently that Michael Garcia, who's Alcides Escobar's cousin, would be getting so much more acclaim if it wasn't for Bobby Witt Jr. Right? They played the same position, so Garcia gets overlooked, but he was outstanding, and I think people would be talking about him similarly to how we talk about Pasquantino and Massey as that second tier, still really good prospects in the system if it wasn't for Bobby Witt Jr. Is he a guy that's going to be like a glove-only guy, or how do you feel about his hit tool at this point? Because that's... No, his his hit tool's elite. He's got a really good hit tool. Uh, he reminds me of Esky in a lot of ways, except that he's willing to take a walk. Like, Garcia's got a really good approach at the plate, a really good hit tool. He's a great defender. He stole 35 bags last year. He just doesn't hit for any present power, similarly to his cousin, you know, Esky. There's a lot of similarities there. And even if he was Eski, right? Eski was a two-win player for a few years. He was a starting shortstop on a World Series team. Like, Eski's bat was worse than I think people remember because of the years he played and of the highlights, you know. Um, Eski was pretty bad at the plate for the most part. I think Garcia is capable of being that, and I also think that his power potential is better than Eski's, and I think his approach is better than Eski's. So, um you know, I know Esky was a top like ten prospect in baseball at one point, but I really believe Michael Garcia can be ninety percent of what Esky was, and if he's any better than that, then he's a very, very serviceable player on a playoff team in the big leagues. I am glad you mentioned uh, Brewer Hicklin uh, because he's a guy that was kind of a favorite of mine when he was drafted. I believe he was like a football player at University of Alabama Birmingham as well, uh -huh. uh, but a really, really interesting power speed combo. And I think. Uh, people, I don't know if people have been sleeping on his speed. Uh, here are his stolen base totals in the minors in his full seasons. So in 2018, 35 stolen bases in 104 games. 
2019, 39 stolen bases in, two, in, in 125 games. And then last year, 40 stolen bases in 107 games was caught just four times in AA. Uh, you know, in AA, you're facing some pretty good catchers at that point. And usually when you see a guy like that, you're, you're like, okay, well, he hit one or two home runs, right? No, I mean, he's got, you know, 18 home runs, 14 home runs, 16 home runs. And he's a 20, uh, a guy that can hit 20 home runs, you know, 15, 20 home runs, and steal, you know, 30 to 50 bases. And to me, that's a really intriguing guy, um, especially if he can, you know, if the bat's even, you know, close to average, I think that's a guy that can really help you in the outfield. So I'm kind of interested to see what he could do. Uh, Michael Massey, I'm, you know, he's another guy that's kind of, um, come on onto the radar. I think this this year, this spring, I think he's kind of opened some eyes. It, you know, you talk about him being the second baseman of the future. You know, they took Nick Lofton in, in the first round. Uh, where does that kind of leave him if you've got Michael Massey kind of penciled in the second um, and maybe Bobby Wood Jr. at short or third? Um, where, do, where do we see Nick Lofton? Is he going to be a, a middle infielder? Is he going to the outfield? Yeah, I think so. Lofton and Prado have a similar situation because Prado is definitely a better first base prospect in terms of defensively as Pasquantino, right? But Pasquantino can't really move off the bag. So if Prado goes to right field, it won't be won't be because Pasquantino's better at first base, right? It's because Prado is the only guy who can move off the position. Well, similarly, Lofton might be a better second base prospect than Massey overall, but Massey is kind of stuck at the bag. I mean, he might be able to play third. He could probably handle first base. But he's a definite second baseman where Lofton, I feel like you could put anywhere on the field and get adequate defense, put him in left field, right field, third base. And I think he's going to give you really good defense. So Lofton, to me, all things the same is a better prospect than Massey. I just think Lofton's so versatile. You could put him wherever and not lose anything where if you move Massey off second base, he's going to lose quite a bit of his prospect value. So, um, you know, I think Lofton could be the left fielder. I think he could be the third baseman. I think he could be um, a center fielder in some ways. And he's that's another guy where I was talking about Massey's defense. You know, I've mentioned, like, everywhere I've been, that I don't think Lofton can play center field in Kansas City. Like, I don't even think it's close, personally. But every time I've said that, I've gotten a text from at least one person saying, well, don't be so quick to say that. Like, he's he's pretty quick. He's got great reads in the outfield. I'm like, well... I haven't seen it, but these people are smarter than I am. They know him better. They've been around him. So so maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong about Lofton not being able to play center field, but I haven't seen anything to suggest that the Royals believe that yet, even if people smarter than me seem to think that. Well, it's a nice problem to have, and, and, you, and I really like the series you guys have done the last couple of weeks where you looked at the organizational depth at each position. And I was curious where you feel like the Royals are, are kind of strongest right now uh, because, we you know, the lineup it could use some help, frankly. I um, mean, we've seen some of the pitchers come up. Um, the hitters have been a little bit further away. We're going to start seeing them hopefully this year if there is a season. Uh, but what position um, do you feel like the Royals are kind of dealing from a position of strength? It would definitely be the middle infield if we're talking about hitters. I've, you know, I don't remember ever having this many middle infielders in the Royal system. I mean, they go from, if you go from the top down, it's uh, Nicky Lopez who hit 300 and probably should have won the gold glove at shortstop last year. Whit Merrifield, who was in the running for gold glove at second base. You have Adalberto Mondesi, who, I mean, you tell me. Bobby Witt Jr., Michael Massey, Nick Lofton, Peyton Wilson, Michael Garcia. I mean, they have legitimately, if you go from 2022 to 2028, they have like six, seven, eight legitimate middle infield like possibilities. I mean, they are they are loaded in the middle, which is going to allow Bobby Witt Jr. to slide over to third base, which is going to allow Nick Lofton to slide to the outfield. Um, I, I don't remember them ever having middle infielders like this. I mean, it's kind of it's kind of crazy what they've been able to come up with, which is a great problem to have. Michael Garcia would be a great trade candidate if they would unlock the you know the, the lockout would end and you could trade him. Um, but they've they've got depth there. And then on the pitching side, it's the bullpen. I think this bullpen is going to be electric in 2023. You know, it's it's impossible to say that you're going to have HDH again. That was one of the most dominant bullpen runs in Major League Baseball history, especially when you consider the two-year window that those guys went on. I mean, that was just ridiculous. But the bullpen arms are loaded. I mean, Will Klein, Dylan Coleman, Josh Stalma, Scott Barlow, 
Anthony Veneciano led the led the team in strikeouts last year. He's a lefty. It throws 100 miles an hour down in high A. Nate Webb's on the 40. Colin Snyder's on the 40. I mean, they just got guys coming in from all over the place. Um, that doesn't even include guys who I think could move quick, like John McMillan, Eric Sarantola, that that could move really quick if you needed them to. Um, and so I think I think they're loaded. I think the bullpen is going to be electric. And I really think it's going to be a position of strength for them uh, as soon as they're ready to open their contention window. And you got to have to imagine, too, that some of those starters that we were kind of penciling in, some of those guys are, you know, probably aren't going to cut it um, because that's just the, the way pitching goes a lot of times. And they, but they could still find second life, like Wade Davis did uh, as a reliever, as a dominant reliever. So that's yeah, this, I think that is really exciting to think about getting back to that dominant Royals bullpen and not having to deal with like the Brad Boxburgers of the world anymore. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, I, I appreciate the coverage you guys have been doing. Royals Farm Report. Uh, tell us, you guys sign on to KC Sports Network. Tell us a little about what, what you're working on with them and what you what you guys are doing. Yeah, that was a really cool opportunity that came together, and um, you know, we they we've started doing video podcasts now. So I had to get you guys can see it back here. I know people listening can't, but um, had to start getting my backdrop set up. And um, you know, over there, it's gonna we're gonna be doing a lot of the same stuff we did last summer. Um, we're gonna shorten up some of the things we did in terms of like our our minor league recap every week. Um, you know, but the podcast should be a lot of the same. Hope to bring back a lot of the same players we've interviewed before. Um, I think Annie Rogers is hopping on the podcast on Sunday to talk about what she's seen down at minor league camp. So we're excited to have her on. Um, but yeah, a really cool opportunity over there. I think we're bringing back the draft guide this summer. So back in 2019, when the Royals drafted Bobby Witt Jr., we ran our first draft guide. Seemed to be really popular. Um, it was a rough, it was a rough go at it at first because we'd never done anything like that before. But um, you know, had a lot of fun doing it. Planned on bringing it back in 2020, and then COVID hit, and it was like we can't physically get out and see these guys. Um, you know, and 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 there was so little scouting that went on in, at all that it just didn't seem, you know, like a like something that was doable at the time. And then 2021 rolled around, and there were still restrictions on who could go to college games. And I didn't, I didn't get to see a college baseball game in person. So I was at the world series. Um, Vanderbilt was playing Arizona maybe. So um, didn't do it last year, but the draft guide will be back. We've got guys out at high school games, out at college games. So the draft guide will be back this summer, which was a lot of fun. So hopefully we'll have a, um, a super team of sorts putting that together. But uh, yeah, otherwise we're just, we're waiting for baseball to start like everybody else. The fortunate thing for us though, is we have a date. And when April 5th rolls around, we're going to have baseball, whether or not big league baseball fans have it or not. So um, I don't know about you guys, but I'm going to be watching Bobby Witt Jr. play baseball on April, April 5th, whether Rob wants to let the big league guys play or not. So I'm excited about that. Yeah, it will be nice to have uh, the minor leaguers back. And, and really, I've, I've wanted to make a concerted effort to, to really follow college baseball more this year because it is, it is an exciting game, and, and, uh, and a lot of these players will end up uh, being pros and um, and I, I do appreciate your draft guide. I did find that to be, as a fan, a really useful resource and a good way of kind of following the draft. It's not going to be for everyone. Not everyone I know is interested in the, the major league draft the way uh, people are interested in the NFL draft. But if you are a draft, Nick, if you are kind of interested in seeing, um, you know, what what's out there, what's available for the Royals to select, uh, I highly recommend uh, the job you guys did uh, and, and, and picking up that guide again this year. So uh, and, and definitely follow what uh, you guys are doing at, at Royals Farm Report and Casey Sports Network because it was really exciting. Well, let's uh, wrap things up with uh, our Royals review reviews. Uh, Jeremy, uh, why don't you kick things off this tonight? You would make me go first. <laughs> I've been struggling with this all day. I'm gonna I'm gonna recommend a video game series, um, and it is the Yakuza uh, video game series. It is. It is special, and I've heard people call it uh, like the Japanese GTA or the Japanese Saints Row, and, and that doesn't really do it justice. It is it's similar to them in that it's an open world game set in a city. Um, the the games are primarily set in the red light district of Tokyo, um, so lots of good stuff is going on there. The main stories are uh just really fun not fun 
I guess is probably the wrong word, but there's they're melodramas, uh, you know, that, that take place around the Yakuza, the Japanese mafia. Um, and and they're they're really pretty good melodramas. Uh, I know melodrama has kind of a negative connotation, but I use it in the theatrical sense, which is to say, things are over the top, but not in a bad way. Um, and and then, but what the game really shines is in its sub stories, uh, really fleshes out the characters and the kind of the world uh, of of you know Japan, Tokyo. Uh, they go to different cities in some of the later titles. Uh, and and it's just it, it, surprisingly heartwarming for a game that's allegedly about uh, you know the Japanese mafia. So uh, it's a lot of fun. And uh, if you like video games, uh, I highly recommend you try those. All right, Alex, what do you have as our Royals review reviews this week? Yeah, so I'm gonna. Again, I'm going to promote one more time that article that Jared wrote about Brewer Hicklin over on our website. It was seriously, it's one of the best articles I've ever edited and run for the website. It was it was really really good, so I would highly recommend checking that out. But the next thing I want to promote, am I allowed to like promote a subject? Please. Okay. So, for one of my classes that I'm teaching, um I you know, obviously being I've got three preps, so I I as a high school teacher, you know, my, my degree is in education. My degree is not in history. So I always joke with, you know, I think I said it to my bosses in my interview that put me in a chemistry class, give me three weeks, I'll figure it out, right? Like, so I'm not a history guru. Like, I teach history, but it's not like I am a historian, right? I'm an educator, and then subjects are secondary to, to teaching children, right? But um, anyway... So for one of my classes I was teaching, you know, I'm, I'm familiar with the history of our prison labor system in the United States in some capacity. But I decided I would do a presentation over it for one of my classes because they were interested in it. They wanted me. They wanted to learn more about it. I was like, let me get back to you guys on that. We'll do that after spring break. And I don't know that I ever realized exactly the extent of how prison labor began in the United States and like the history of of peonage, which is using like if if you owe somebody money that you can force them to do manual labor to pay off their debts so the history of peonage and prison labor and and the convict leasing system in the united states in the late 1800s early 1900s is something i learned a lot about this week and is something that i'm gonna lecture over um you know coming up in the coming weeks for one of my classes that wanted to learn more about it so um something that i found to be very disturbing the more and the more and the more that I that researched it and read about it and looked it up. So if, if history is your thing or if that is something that you're passionate about, I learned more about that literally this week than I ever learned in high school or in college. So I uh, found that to be fascinating. And again, I was familiar with it vaguely, but the details that you know I came across and the reading I did this week was, was mind-blowing. So I'll, I'll throw that at, in the ring today. I've been thinking about that a lot today. That's really interesting. I was... Uh... I volunteered for um, my my son's class uh, you know, career day today, and uh, had to speak in front of a, a room full of thirteen year old, fourteen year old kids. And I have a newfound uh, appreciation for teachers and what they do, especially at the middle school and high school level, because that is not an easy thing to do. Speaking for speaking in front of a bunch of kids who um, are in various stages of attention, so uh, I do appreciate that. That is very cool that you're kind of bringing up uh, you know subjects that I don't think get enough attention. So very 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 cool. Um, my Royals Review Review is I just happened to be catching, uh, I was on a Saturday afternoon, there was no sports on, and I was flipping through, and PBS was airing the Ken Burns documentary on Jackie Robinson, which I had somehow never seen, and it was a fantastic documentary, and uh, really gets into how complex of a man he was. Uh, I didn't, uh, I think we kind of get the, um, kind of the, the Disney version of Jackie Robinson that, you know, he overcame racism and, and, and persevered and was a great player. And, uh, you know, some people were mean and racist against him and he you know, kind, of, kind of turned the other cheek and he's much more complex than that. I mean, he's a, he's a man that definitely had a, a chip on his shoulder and rightfully so uh, for some of the racism he endured, especially in the military where he was court-martialed for an incident on a bus in which he was asked to sit in the back of the bus uh, even though the the military was uh, trying to integrate at that time, um, uh, it really fascinating, and he had some some really complicated politics after he retired from the game. 
Um, so I would highly recommend uh, Ken Burns. And, he, you know, if you've watched the baseball series he did, um, and that's fantastic as well. But the Jackie Robinson, there's a, there's a specific documentary he did on Jackie Robinson uh, that has a lot of great interviews with, of course, Buck O'Neill, who knew him well, uh, his wife, Rachel Robinson, who's a great um, kind of great spokesperson for him and, and what they had to go through. Um, and all the, a lot of other great historians who um, can talk about what Jackie went through and, and some of his uh, um, um, how he felt about the game and, and really American culture at that time. But uh, the Jackie Robinson documentary by Ken Burns, I would highly recommend it. I think it was, was it MLB or MLBPA who released today that if they don't get agreed upon in time by like what it, whatever the next deadline is, that that would be the next marker is the missing of set the 75th anniversary of Jackie Robinson breaking the color bear. So whoever floated that out there, you got to think that's on their minds. Like that is something that's important to them. So I'm hoping that we don't miss the 75th anniversary of, of Robinson's debut, but it's interesting. You brought that up with, I, I had seen that earlier today. So, um, that, that'll be a cool moment to celebrate later this summer or spring. Yeah, if, if they don't cancel, which I think I agree, that would be a, a really black eye for baseball if they didn't get that uh, in this year. So, Well, that'll do it for us this week. I want to thank Alex Duvall and Jeremy Greco for being on. And uh, from, from all of us at Royals Review Radio, uh, thank you for listening, and we'll talk to you next time. Hey!